thank you uh, very much, Simon, and I'm uh, very honoured to uh, very honoured to be here and very honoured to have been uh, um, made the, the Graham Wallace uh, Professor of Political Science. I never thought that I would end up as a professor of political science since I've spent much of my academic career complaining that politics is not something that is meant to be scientific. But anyway, here it is. Um, and of course, I'm especially uh, honoured um, to be recognised in this way by the department and the school when the area in which I've made my name, feminist political theory, remains very much a minority occupation. So it's, it's particularly an honour. Um, just one uh, slight apology, which is that, as you can probably tell from my rather husky voice, uh, I have uh, rather a bad sore throat, and I'm, I'm kind of reminded of uh, an occasion when I was flown at what seemed to me enormous cost to Australia to give one of the plenary talks at a major conference there. And uh, I arrived in Sydney, and I had completely lost my voice. <laughs> and I spent four days kind of in a total panic as to whether I would recover it in time. Uh, fortunately, I did. So anyway, so my, my, my title obviously is intended as a bow in the direction of Graham Wallace, uh, who, has, as Simon said, uh, published a book called Human Nature in Politics in 1908, which was still required reading for politics undergraduates when I was studying philosophy and politics at uh, Bristol in the late 1960s. A picture of Graham Wallace. Um, now, I realize, uh, rereading it for uh, tonight's lecture, um, that I really didn't at all get the message of the book, which is a kind of... Um, it's a kind of proleptic critique of rational choice, in fact. Uh, uh, Wallace challenged what he called the intellectualist assumption, quote, that every human action is the result of an intellectual process by which a man first thinks of some end which he desires and then calculates the means by which that end can be attained. Uh, it was a mistake in his view to work with idealized notions of the rational self-interested man but it was also a mistake to work with notions of the average one. Uh, he was very insistent on variation, on the range and variability of human behaviors and characteristics. And here his argument better suits uh, the preoccupations of my more scientific uh, colleagues. Uh, he very much stressed the role of quantitative methods in uh, capturing that variation and generating more accurate answers to political questions. Now, at the time... But I read this. I don't think I took much more away from the book than just the idea that people had very different notions of human nature. And uh, for, for what I like to think was just a short period, uh, because it was clearly a very simplistic idea, um, I thought that you could make sense of pretty much everything in politics by the question of whether people had an optimistic or a pessimistic view of human nature. So this is a slide which you can look at, but you should immediately banish from your minds because it's wrong, right? Which was, you know... So in my, in my kind of taxonomy, I had, um, I had Hobbes clearly... Thomas Hobbes clearly is a pessimist, uh, you know, thinking human beings were all out to do one another down, um, needing an all-powerful state to keep them in check. Uh, John Locke, an optimist, uh, human beings often in error, but basically full of good intentions and uh, uh, trying to do the right thing. Uh, Karl Marx, an optimist, and I've chosen the, uh, the dashing young Marx rather than the bearded patriarch 
in order to, uh, to sort of make that point. Uh, in Marx's view, once you free people from the uh, relentless processes of capital accumulation, then they will work to the best of their abilities without either incentive or regulation. And Nietzsche, of course, a pessimist, uh, sort of human, be human beings driven by the will to power, uh, but facing the terrifying prospect of eternal recurrence, the endless repetition in which everything repeats itself in the same form. Now, as I say, just erase that now from your mind, because though for a while this was a kind of handy way of dividing up the world and the problems of the world, um, fortunately, fortunately for my progress towards the Graham Wallace chair, um, <laughs> I realized that the story was more complex. Um, and I didn't continue in this vein for long. I, uh, I read uh, Sheldon Wolin's Politics of Vision, which was particularly influential for me, which told a, a much more complex story. Uh, but more important still, I discovered the women's movement, which was full of people who were optimistic about the possibilities for radical change, but none of whom seemed to set much store by the notion of human nature. And in the uh, famous words of Simone de Beauvoir, uh, one is not born, but rather becomes a woman. Now, the processes that make us men and women uh, don't just operate through the, you know, the obvious everyday of uh, you know, encouraging little boys to be resilient and uh, little girls to look sweet, but through the, the multiple and very perceptible ways in which we learn what is normal and what is not. Does that one come out all right? Yeah. Um, LAUGHTER and, and thinking, about, thinking about these processes makes you doubt, first, whether there is anything particularly natural about the way we turn out to be, uh, but also whether it makes any sense to talk about what humans essentially are before all that process of becoming men and women gets underway. Now, I think there, there was, and I think still is, a strand of thinking that conceives of liberation as a kind of freeing oneself, a freeing oneself from confinements and constraints and repressions and the requirement to act and speak and dress in particular kinds of ways. So a kind of thinks of liberation as a kind of throwing off of the shackles, um, as if at the end of this we can uncover the original untainted human being. We can get back to the real human nature before all this becoming women and men got underway. This, this understanding is, I think, very roughly uh, what Michel Foucault described as the repressive hypothesis, and I think it's become less and less convincing. It seems to me that the only way you can plausibly think of, the, of there being a real and original us uh, prior, existing prior to all the processes that make us comprehensible as human beings would be if you, if you operated with a very... Um, I mean, if you reduce the notion of the human to a, to a sort of more or less physiological entity, that seems to me to be the only way that you could make sense of that. It's not, of course, that we can't change ourselves or that we can't challenge power relations, but the idea that we could throw off everything that makes us who we are to recapture some prior untainted self is, in my view, unintelligible. Now, I mean, I'm giving you here... Um, really what's just the bare bones of a critique of essentialism, which is clearly it's a critique not just of an essential feminine nature or an essential masculine nature, 
but is a critique of the idea of an essential human nature itself. Criticising essentialism, however, can be somewhat paralysing. And the worry that I start from in this, le in this lecture, and, and it's a worry that um, is particularly f familiar in the feminist literature, the worry is that that, that kind of critique of essentialism um, can make it impossible to articulate any sense of what we have in common. This is a worry that uh, returns, I think, with particular force when thinking through some of the tensions between feminism and multiculturalism, um, which is something that I, I, mean, I, I did quite a lot of work on over the last 10 years. And just very, very sort of briefly, there's a, kind of, there's a feminist critique of multiculturalism, which is essentially saying that the problem with multiculturalism is that it, it can empower cultural leaders who then mobilize ideas of what it is that's intrinsic to their culture understood as they understand it in ways that can justify abuses of women. But there's also um, something that I think a lot of feminists became very concerned about, which is the ways in which conservative critics of multiculturalism mobilize claims about equality or the rights of women um, in order to represent, to depict people from marginalized cultural groups as backward and profoundly other. So there's both of those kind of uh, issues going on there. So, I mean, I'm thinking here of the kind of, you know, the see how backward they are syndrome, kind of when people talk about how some sort of undefined they, uh, they stone their women, uh, they force their daughters into unwanted marriages, uh, they, um, they deny girls an education, when the, the, the they in question is meant to refer to an entire nation or culture or religion. The differences in that kind of discourse are commonly framed as cultural or as religious rather than as would have been the case in an earlier epoch in, in racial terms, but they retain strong racial undertones and they can be deployed as with more overtly uh, racial, racist discourses to justify forms of treatment that would otherwise be considered inhuman. Um, at their worst, those presumptions of difference can lead to some people being regarded and treated as less than human. Now, this is the worry that, well, many people have talked about, but Judith Butler, among others, uh, draws attention to when she asks us to consider whose lives count as human lives, whose lives we regard as grievable, uh, and points to the, uh, the discrepancy between the indifference with which we glance over the figures of the dead and maimed in distant contexts uh, while grieving those closer to home, and the ease with which we construct images of the enemy or the barbarian that then relieve us of even minimal obligations of respect. But I think even in much lesser versions, just the kind of the, the more kind of everyday ways in which uh, the casual assertions about you know, the Irish or the Serbs or Muslims or Arabs, in those kind of casual assertions, there's an obliteration of both individuality and commonality in generalizations about entire peoples. So I'm thoroughly disenchanted with those exaggerations of difference that I think enter into a lot of the everyday talk about cultural difference and cultural others and that come into play when people talk of what they conceive 
as cultural or national difference. And in that context, I increasingly want to invoke some strong notion of a common humanity or the fundamental similarities in our shared condition as a way of challenging this. So that, in a sense, is my starting point. But then, if you'll kind of follow me through the kind of the, the train of thought that's going on here, as I, as I hope I'll be able to convey to tonight, that language of a common humanity is problematic, right? So I want it, but I'm also kind of want to draw your attention to some of the some of the difficulties with it in the process then of trying to reformulate it in ways that I think will better meet the, the challenge. It's, the language of a common humanity is problematic. It's conceptually problematic, as I, as I hope I'll indicate in some of the things that, uh, that I'll say soon. It's also, I think, become less and less powerful as a way of mobilizing solidarity. Um, in a, a recent analysis of what she calls post-humanitarianism, uh, Lily Chuliaraki, uh, who I'm glad to see is here tonight, uh, writes of a shift in the way solidarity with distant others is framed in, the, uh, in humanitarian appeals or the reporting of, of d disasters and famine. Um, instead of what she describes as another oriented morality, framed broadly around notions of a common humanity, she argues that we're moving increasingly to what she terms a self-oriented morality in which the giving always have to, has to be associated with gratifications to the self. So whether it's the rock concert or the kind of the, the pleasure that we get in kind of, you know, feeling ourselves in tune with, you know, our favorite celebrity or the kind of the gratification of kind of engaging ourselves in, in Twitter and so on. Uh, we are, she argues all too knowing and too ironic to fall for the simplicities of that earlier notion of being linked in a common humanity. Now, uh, it would be a mistake to uh, exaggerate the impact of intellectuals in this, or indeed in anything, um, but I think this decline in the, the power of the notion of common humanity is partly because there's been so much criticism of notions of the human, uh, human nature, or humanity, in recent decades. Uh, for myself, uh, working within uh, a broadly feminist tradition, I've become very suspicious of definitions of our common humanity that revolve around notions like rationality or the capacity for purposive action. Uh, these are definitions that historically have constituted the man of reason as precisely that, a man. I've also, on the other side, come to suspect appeals to a stripped-down, contentless humanity that we're all supposed to share. I don't accept that we have to set to one side the particularities of our gender, race, sexuality, and so on in order to be recognized as equal. So the, the content, it seems to me, is suspicious. The lack of content is suspicious. Um, so my question really is how it's possible to articulate a sense of what, as humans, we have in common that, that is powerful enough you know, to at least start the process of combating racism, xenophobia, misogyny, ultranationalism, various hatreds of the other. So a, a, a conception of what we have in common that's powerful enough for that, but not so loaded with content that our notions of the human become a basis for differentiating between human beings, those who fit and those who don't, 
nor indeed so lacking in content that it becomes a stripped-down, contentless, disembodied abstraction. I've just laid that out in very general terms, and now I'm going to try and fill, that, fill in what I mean by that, um, you know, so that, so that I can convince you. Um, okay, so... Uh, Really, what I want, I mean, there are lots of, lots of um, issues about the human and humanity in the literature. I'm just going to focus on three uh, that, that seem to me particularly uh, worth thinking about. The first is, uh, is the idea of the impotence of the human, the notion that talking about the human or human rights or our common humanity can seem just empty words, you know, kind of meaningless, impotent. Um, in, in her book, the, the Origins of Totalitarianism, which Hannah Arendt wrote under the shadow of the Nazi concentration camps and the death camps for the Roma homosexuals and Jews, she wrote of the, the bitter confirmation, that's her term, the bitter confirmation of all those like Edmund Burke who had poured scorn on the French revolutionaries for their crazy ideas about the rights of man. Uh, Burke famously argued that you'd be much safer relying on the rights of an Englishman than this kind of abstract, you know, rights of human beings in general. Uh, though she arrives at this from a very different direction, um, Arendt ultimately agrees, as she puts it, the survivors of the extermination camps the inmates of concentration camps and internment camps, and even what she describes as the comparatively happy, stateless people, could see without Burke's arguments that the abstract nakedness of being nothing but human was their greatest danger. And I think that's an incredibly powerful phrase, that idea of the abstract nakedness of being nothing but human. Um, basically, in her argument, and it seems to me there's a great deal of power in this, if you've reached the point where you've nothing but your human rights to cling to, right, that that's the only basis on which you can call on people to sort of to respect you, to recognize you, to, to treat you with, uh, with equality, if you've got no state that any longer recognizes you as its citizens, if you've got no political authority that is assuming responsibility for your protection or security, you are, she argues, from the evidence of the 20th century, you are pretty much doomed, right? So, so, so part of what she's, she's saying there is, is, well, I mean, I think her, her argument is, her argument's not just the kind of the more familiar one that I think very often comes up in discussions about human rights, about the ways in which um, declarations of rights become just empty words unless there are clear mechanisms of enforcement. I mean, this is, this is clearly an important and continuing reservation that people have about the whole politics of human rights, that you can, talk, you can say wonderful things about you know, the rights that people have as humans, but unless you've got some kind of mechanisms of enforcement, what exactly does it mean? But I think Arendt's argument is not just that. She's saying something deeper than this. She's saying that rights claims are intrinsically bound up with equality, that when we recognize rights, we're recognizing our mutual equality, and equality for her, this is the further step for her, equality for a rent, is something that people bring into being within a political context. Uh, equality, and at this point I completely agree with her, equality is not some natural characteristic that we're all born with. I mean, it's a lovely phrase to sort of talk about how all humans are kind of born free and equal. 
Um, you know, but it's not something that actually is true. Uh, equality is something that we create. It's something that we bring into existence. And in her argument, and here I'm not so sure that I'm convinced by her, but in her argument, it's only within the framework of a political community, or more precisely, when we establish the kinds of political communities that claim to be based on equal rights, that the notion of, um, that the notion of human rights comes to have any kind of significance. And if that's, if that's the case, I mean, if that argument kind of carries any conviction, then the idea of rights, these human rights, providing protection outside the framework of political communities, these rights that we enjoy just as humans rather than of citizens of state X or state Y, that idea becomes implausible. Now, I think nowadays um, people... Um, nowadays, people tend to be uh, less gloomy than Hannah Arendt was about the possibility of transnational bodies that can enforce these human rights or the power of that language of human rights to mobilize solidarity across national borders. Though I have to say that if you were, if you were a refugee in contemporary Britain, you know, living on the kind of less than five pounds a day, facing the institutionalized suspicion of the UK border agency, living in fear that you're going to be sent home to the country that's trying to kill you. I mean, if you were in that kind of position, then I think Arendt's kind of point about the abstract nakedness of being nothing but human would ring very true. But, and even if the human in human rights does have, as I think it does, more transnational force than at the time Arendt was criticizing it in the late 1940s, it still falls a long way short of recognizing our mutually equal rights. The principle of shared humanity, of us all being human, tends to invite humanitarianism rather than rights. It invites kind of, it invokes uh, pity or compassion. Uh, it invites aid to the suffering or displaced. And if Lily Chiliaraki is right, it doesn't even invite that anymore, but more the kind of the ironic self-gratification in the pleasures of feeling for others. As many critics of the aid relationship or humanitarianism in general suggest, none of this necessarily means recognizing people as having equal status and rights. So in that sense, I think the problem that Arendt identified, how to make a right that is based solely on being human a meaningful political force, very much continues today. So that, that's the kind of the, the first worry about the human, is that kind of, the potential kind of impotence of, you know, the, abs the nakedness of being nothing but human. The second concern um, about the notion of the human is the potential for hierarchy and exclusion. Whenever you offer a definition of the human or human species or humanity, you risk endorsing something that then operates as a, as a, as a means of exclusion. And historically, of course, there's a great deal of evidence for this. Um, uh, if, for example, the qualities that make us human are thought to lie in rationality and the capacity for moral judgment, you know, if that's what's supposed to distinguish and differentiate humans from other beings, 
and women are thought not to exhibit those qualities. And I have to say, even Mary Wollstonecraft thought that women didn't exhibit these qualities, though she did have an analysis of the, uh, of the, the, the gendered power relations that brought that about. Um, if you have that kind of substantive definition of the human and female beings are seen as falling short, um, then it becomes possible, as for long periods in history happened, it becomes possible to set women outside the category of the human, to say that all men should have equal rights and really mean just men, right? And we know that that happened for a very long time. Or, alternatively, if the human is taken as involving a specific way of marking one's separation from nature, which is another kind of very familiar way in which the notion of the human is kind of understood and defined, and some humans seem not to fit this, it becomes possible to set them outside the category. Um, and just to give one uh, historical example, uh, this is from a book by Kay Anderson called Race and the Crisis of Humanism. Um, she, she argues... Um, you know, as I think many would agree, that, uh, that the distinctive humanity of the human uh, came uh, to be found in its separateness from nature. And she sort of looks at the ways in which writings, um, particularly in the 18th century, and the work of the Scottish Enlightenment was quite significant here, uh, developed a kind of an account of human and social development that saw human beings as passing through supposedly universal stages in which we all started out as hunting societies and then it moved into pasturage and then cultivation and finally into commerce. Now, in Anderson's analysis, that humanist understanding of the unity and progression of mankind, of humankind, uh, was thrown into crisis by the bewildering behavior of Australian aboriginals, which is the the particular case study that she, that she focuses on, who refused to learn settled agriculture and displayed no enthusiasm for separating themselves from nature. And she argues that at this point, this, this more optimistic humanism that had viewed all peoples as ultimately members of the same human race clearly had stratified them. You know, there was a very strong kind of... Uh, um, I, there was a very strong ranking of peoples in terms of how far along the universal stages of progress different peoples had advanced. So it's not that this more optimistic humanism didn't have a sense of ranking, but it was a kind of more optimistic humanism in the sense that people weren't being ranked by intrinsic difference. There was an assumption that kind of, you know, all humankind was linked in this kind of, you know, all peoples would eventually go through these same stages. In the course of the 19th century, and I think this fits with what you know, a lot of other people have uh, identified in their studies, that kind of more optimistic humanism gives way to the idea of biologically distinct races. Uh, it seems to me that that story is one of many stories in which the more precisely the human in, uh, in humanism or humanity is defined, whether it's by notions of rationality, sociability, uh, settled agriculture, uh, or even vulnerability to pain. I mean, think of the, the ways in which people used to, used to be able to sort of talk about how particular categories of human beings somehow felt, felt pain less intensely than others. So even vulnerability to pain allows for that kind of ranking and that kind of hierarchy. Now, you might say that 
those substantive notions of the human with all of their capacity for this kind of hierarchy of the, the really human, the not quite human, the subhuman. You might say um, that you know, what are sometimes described as philosophical anthropologies are much rarer today, that we've kind of freed ourselves from that kind of, you know, that way of thinking about the human. Uh, you might say, well, nobody nowadays locates our claims to human rights, for example, in factual claims about our human nature. Um, and that while, of course, there is plenty of historical evidence, uh, some of which I've just indicated, plenty of historical evidence about the ways in which human has been used in, in exclusionary fashion, um, many people would say, well, this is a historical rather than a contemporary problem. Um, I don't myself think that that's the case. Um, just work on human dignity, for example, um, very often makes claims about the special worth or the special value of the human species and often formulates this precisely in those very familiar terms about the capacity of humans to separate themselves from nature. I mean, just to give one, uh, one recent example, in his book on human dignity, George Kateb argues that, quote, only the human species is a break with nature and significantly not natural. I should add that he doesn't use that in order to say we can mistreat animals, right? I mean, that's not the kind of the argument that he's making. But it is a very strong notion of the kind of the, what differentiates the human, what makes us human and makes being human so valuable is grounded in that quite classic idea about the separation from nature. Uh, and I think in popular discourse, uh, depictions of certain peoples as more like animals than humans continue to play a role, for example, in the depiction of the Roma. Uh, I'd also add, though I, I won't explore this here, but I think arguments about what constitutes the human in that kind of rather definitional way have returned with a vengeance in the context of the advances in the biosciences that allow for far-reaching manipulation of human genes and capabilities. And I think in worries about the post-human, the transhuman, uh, the hybrid humans that uh, we're now threatened with or promised through these kinds of developments, substantive ideas of the human, well, what is it that actually makes something human, it seems to me have very much returned to the, to the agenda. So I don't, I don't think this, this second concern about the ways in which ideas about the human... Um, have always this potential for hierarchy and exclusion. Um, I don't think that it is just a historical problem. I think it's something that, that still remains with us today. However, and this is the, the third worry, um, I don't think that we can simply escape these differences by just emptying human of all content. I mean, I think that's the, that's the attractive solution. Um, I mean, faced with the exclusions that seem to come into play when you have a very, um, you know, definite understanding of what makes somebody a human being, faced with that, I think it's very tempting to turn to the opposite. So to strip down the notion of the human until it's as abstract as possible, right, independent of all particularities, producing a contentless all-purpose human. And I think we do this a lot when we talk just very generally about us all being the same under the skin, right? Uh, when, or when we brush aside as irrelevant, not to the point, 
our sex, our sexuality, ethnicity, our political or religious views, when we say it doesn't matter whether we're male or female, black or white, what matters is that we are all human beings. So I think it's very much part of a kind of, um, very much part of the ways in which we try to deal with this kind of, um, you know, over-specific understanding of the human is to say, well, all these things are irrelevant, you know, all these particularities and aspects of ourselves. Now, I, I mean, that might seem like the solution. And, I mean, I don't want to totally dismiss it because I think there's a lot of power in that being able to kind of appeal to the sense in which behind everything we're all human beings. But it seems to me that that also has a lot of problems. Um, the problem then is not that the human has too much content, you know, that it's too, um, uh, too normative, too potentially exclusionary. Uh, the problem is that it becomes almost empty. Um, this is something that uh, Costas Duzinas has, has argued quite a lot in his work on human rights. Um, uh, he argues that the, the human who then becomes the subject of human rights uh, emerges as an abstraction with as little humanity as possible. Quote, a human cipher lacking the characteristics that make each person a living, a unique being. And he illustrates with... Um, what I think is quite a striking quote from uh, uh, Francis uh, Fukuyama's um, postmodern future, post-human, post-human, not post-modern, uh, post-human future, got it right on the slide, um, which is written in the context of these worries about the post-human, the transhuman, the hybrid human. And Fukuyama says, what the demand for equality of recognition implies is that when we strip all of a person's contingent and accidental characteristics away, there remains some essential human quality underneath that is worthy of a certain minimal kind of respect. Call it factor X. Skin color, looks, social class and wealth, gender, cultural background, and even one's natural talents are all accidents of birth relegated to the class of non-essential characteristics. We make decisions on whom to befriend, whom to marry or do business with, or whom to shun at social events, uh, on the basis of these characteristics. But in the political realm, we are required to respect people equally on the basis of their possession of factor X. And I think it's quite revealing that, you know, the only word he can come up for it is X, right? You know, because we've taken all content out of it. What we're left with is simply uh, factor X. That abstraction of this essential human quality from everything that makes us the actual human beings we are is, to use his term, bizarre. Now, I mean, this then sort of brings me back to one of my starting points. I mean, factor X cuts across what has been um, uh, a central principle in much feminist but also critical race theory, which is that we shouldn't have to abstract abstract from or deny our particularities in order to be recognized as equal. Uh, women should not have to present themselves as disembodied abstractions uh, in order to claim their equal status in the world. Uh, those with darker skins should not have to insist on us all being the same under the skin, should not, that is, have to present themselves as without skin color in order to be accepted as the equals of those whose skin is lighter. We should not have to pretend away key aspects of ourselves, ask forbearance in the face of our particularities, or appeal to people to see who and what we are beyond our gender, skin color, sexuality, or disability. 
that idea that we can separate out some core self from all these contingent features, all the contingent features that actually make us who we are, represents those contingencies as of lesser significance and perhaps even as things to be slightly ashamed of. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's rather odd to um, quote uh, Hannah Arendt in this context um, because her, um, her views on political equality, the factor X political equality, are actually quite close to Fukuyama's. But there's a, there's a rather telling passage in the speech that she gave in 1959 on receiving the, the Lessing Prize that I think captures some of what I'm, some of what I'm trying to get at here. Uh, she says, in, in the case of a friendship between a German and a Jew under the conditions of the Third Reich, it would scarcely have been a sign of humanness for the friends to have said, are we not both human beings? It would have been mere evasion of reality and of the world common to both at that time. They would not have been resisting the world as it was. In keeping with a humanness that has not lost the solid ground of reality, a humanness in the midst of the reality of persecution, they would have had to say to each other, a German and a Jew and friends, right? In other words, the idea that you kind of, that you just write, you, you just say what matters is what we all are underneath um, is, 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 is clearly, well, I think, clearly problematic. So that's three problems, right? Um, one is the impotence, uh, you know, the nakedness of the, of the only human. One is the kind of potential, the way in which human it's hard to see how it couldn't have some kind of potential for exclusion, the kind of the inability to recognize others that don't quite fit your definition of human uh, as being really fully human. And then this obliteration of difference, the kind of the, um, the, kind of the, uh, the where the context is, is stripped away to produce an abstract personhood that's either genuinely empty, uh, so just denies what we understand by the notion of human, or, and this is what uh, many feminists have argued, gets fleshed out by reference to the characteristics of those more normal and powerful. So all of this is about problems, right? So I kind of started out saying, I really want us to be able to mobilize uh, some notion of common humanity. It seems to me very hard uh, to think about politics in the modern world without being able to mobilize that in some way. And what I've done at this point um, is basically to rehearse what I think are very real difficulties uh, associated with invoking our common humanity. It's not, it's not a simple politics. Um, but for me, the worry very much remains. I think it's hard to dispense with some notion of what we have in common beyond those often exaggerated differences, something that enables us to recognize the human in others. So... As is typical in all lectures and all academic endeavor, one spends a lot more time on saying what, you know, what's a problem than in offering the solutions. But I do want to say um, two things as indicating an alternative way forward. I think the first is that we have to really finally abandon the idea of the human as a descriptive term. I think lots of people say that they've done that, but I mean, my sense is that it's, it's not been uh, consistently, uh, consistently done. Um, whatever candidate you choose when you're talking about what is it to be human, you know, whether it's rationality, capacity for moral choice, tool making, uh, the capacity to transcend nature, 
it's going to lead you into questions about who and what fits. Uh, indeed, of course, that's the point of the description. What's the point of kind of giving a, a definition of the human if you're not doing that? And then you may be tempted to treat these as matters of empirical investigation. Definitions of the human encourage us into the border disputes about who's in and who's out. And in the process, they justify hierarchies. It's not, in my view, helpful to think of humanness as a reality that grounds our rights, as a set of shared characteristics that we find in some beings but not in others, uh, or a list of characteristics that we can use to work out who's in, who gets the rights and who doesn't. Um, Recognising others as human is a political, not a cognitive matter. It's not a matter of you know, finding out you know, are they human? Do they have these characteristics? It's a political matter. Um, to put this um, more directly in the language of equality, which to my mind is what we're really talking about when we're talking about the notion of the human, the commitment to human equality is not, it's not an empirical claim. It's not something that could be overturned by unexpected new evidence about uh, natural inequalities. Nor is it grounded in moral fact, which is a notion that I find very puzzling. Um, it's obviously it's a claim with a history in the sense that people, people only started thinking about uh, human beings as equals um, in particular periods of history. Um, but I don't see that as making it any the less uh, persuasive or powerful. Saying people are equal, or to put it another way, saying we're all human... Uh, is neither a statement about what is, uh, nor, uh, to be honest, is it really a claim about what people hold to be self-evident, um, you know, because people don't really uh, in practice. It's a political claim. Uh, it indicates what I think is, is still only a very fragile consensus uh, that requires continuous reaffirmation through people's actions and, pra and practices. And I, I just have put a quote here from uh, Jacques Rancière, who, um, who argues that terms like uh, man and citizen um, should be regarded as uh, what he calls surplus names or litigious names, names that set out a question or a dispute about who is to be included in their count. And he argues that people make these names real, give them meaning at the point at which they act on them. It's not as though they are you know, correct or incorrect descriptions of you know, some beings out there that are human beings. Um, you know, that, that this is the, the kind of the notion of man, citizen, equality. Um, these, are, these are notions that we make real at the point at which we act on them, which is something I find a more helpful way to think about what is happening when people claim their human rights or talk about their common humanity. The related point is that Recognizing others as human, in a way, is, is not best understood as recognizing them as like us in some fundamental way. In fact, recognize, and I think this is part of what Hannah Arendt was saying, recognize really isn't the right term. I mean, if you talk about recognition, uh, it gives the impression that there, there's something there, something already existing, which, you know, you identify, you recognize, you find out, you discover. Um, I think we do recognize something in the process in which we come to address more people as human beings. Um, we do recognize something, but not the kind of the real shared humanity under all the differences. I think what we're recognizing 
are more the power dynamics that have gone into generating all of these presumptions of difference. Or to put it another way, it seems to me that there is a sense in which when we talk about the, the human that we are involved in a process of stripping away. But it's not a kind of stripping away of all of the kind of, you know, the ir irrelevant things that make you who you are, but they're not important. What matters is the human being underneath. It's not a kind of stripping away of those. It's more a matter of, of stripping away uh, the stereotypes, the preconceptions, the ideological blinkers and hatreds that prevent us from seeing people as people. It's not, I think, a matter of proving an underlying or shared humanity that treats our gender, sexuality, religion, ethnicity, and culture as irrelevant. Um, it's a commitment to, to repeat that point. It's a commitment rather than a discovery. Um, it's a kind of, it's a politics of equality uh, that involves refusing to attach hierarchical significance to differences. Now, one of my um, favorite quotes of the moment is from anthropologist Lila uh, Abu Lugod, who observes, and this is in direct challenge to uh, those who think of cultures as incommensurate, opaque, profoundly different. Uh, she observes that people do not live their lives as, quote, program, as robots programmed with cultural rules, but as people going through life, agonizing over decisions, making mistakes, trying to make themselves look good, enduring tragedies and personal losses, enjoying others, and finding moments of happiness. Now, in one sense, what she's doing there um, could, of course, be described precisely as, as revealing, as drawing attention to the underlying human commonality. We're all like this, right? All of us in our lives, we're going through life, agonizing over decisions, making mistakes, trying to make ourselves look good, and so on. But, I mean, she's not telling us to, therefore, ignore as irrelevant supposedly surface variations. I mean, this is an anthropologist, right? This is not someone who's going to say, oh, well, all those, all those sort of differences are somehow irrelevant. Um, she's telling us to, or she's kind of calling on us to challenge the, the politically charged belief that other people, though, of course, never oneself, uh, live their lives as cultural robots. In um, his 1993 contribution to the uh, Oxford Amnesty Lectures on Human Rights, Richard Rorty argued that human rights derive their political and moral force not from some kind of essential defining features of humanity that we could kind of uncover if we were you know, sufficiently rational in our investigations, but from the everyday stories, what he calls the long, sad, sentimental tales that we can tell about people that enable us finally to see them. Uh, he argued that it's no use whatever to say with Kant, notice that what you have in common, your humanity, is more important than these trivial differences. Um, and he appealed very much to the power of stories, stories in which, in a sense, we make people real by precisely filling in the details about their lives, stories that build on those supposedly trivial elements and thereby enable us to see the other as a far more effective way to promote a politics of human rights. Now, my, my point of contact with Rorty is that, like him, 
I want to move away from those definitional understandings of the essential human to the more everyday levels at which we can see people, however different in other ways, facing similar kinds of challenges and possibilities. I'm not keen, however, on what Rorty um, also argues about the, the discourse of human rights involving a gradually, um, a gradually expanding circle of acquaintances in which through these stories and these everyday recognitions, we come to see more and more people as like us. Um, this way of thinking leaves us too much at the center. We remain the standard against which humanity is recognized and assessed. So there's a kind of, if you're like me, you're recognizably human. Uh, if you're not like me, presumably that means that you are in some way um, not human, less than human, not yet human. Um, and that, that kind of reduces the encounter between us and the other to a kind of narcissistic self-affirmation. You know, oh yes, these are people too because I can see they're people like me. So it's not, it's not the kind of, you know, though I share with Rorty that kind of idea of the kind of the stories about the everyday being the more, the more powerful way in which we think about uh, what we have in common than the kind of, you know, the, uh, the identification of some kind of, you know, sort of feature of, of humanity, whether it's our capacity for reason or whatever it might be uh, that, we, that we use to do that. Um, but I don't, um, I, don't, I don't want to kind of follow him along that line of um, people like us. It seems to me it's more helpful to think of that kind of recognition of the everyday similarity of people's lives as folding back on the ways we see ourselves and in the process perhaps jolting some of our own uh, securities. Um, this is a, a quote from uh, Kwame Anthony Appiah who's, uh, who's arguing something, I mean like uh, Abu Lugod, he's challenging the notion that peoples from other cultures are somehow profoundly different and he's describing um, the mix of the familiar and the unfamiliar that an American visitor to Ghana might experience. And he says, most of the time, once someone has translated the language you don't know or explained some little unfamiliar symbol or custom, you'll have no more and, of course, no less trouble understanding why they do what they do than you do making sense of your neighbors back home. Um, he doesn't himself really stress this, but I actually see that, of course, no less, as a particularly important part of that kind of comment, because it seems to me that in recognizing what we don't understand about what unfamiliar others do, we may come to realize how much we also don't understand about those closest to us. It's not, that is, just that we come to see others as fundamentally the same of us in ways that leave our sense of ourselves untouched, it's also that in tracing through those similarities and differences, we may come to, to view ourselves in a different and perhaps more critical light. At this point, um, I just want to return to Graham Wallace. Um, given my current preoccupations, I was somewhat startled to discover that the, the final chapter of Human Nature in Politics, which I'm quite sure I never got to when I was a student and told to read it, um, the final chapter is devoted to the topic of nationality and humanity. Uh, now, Wallace, um, man of his time, makes a, a number of uh, dubious comments about whether 
representative government can be made appropriate to all races, uh, and he endorses an international science of eugenics that would encourage the improvement of racial types. But it turns out at the same time that he had little sympathy for the idea that effective notions of citizenship depend on living with people we see as like ourselves. He took issue with those of his contemporaries who were pursuing fantasies of an island race. Um, I mean, a lot of people around this time talking about the kind of the political unification of the, you know, the English, the, the island race peoples across, you know, uh, England and America and uh, what uh, Seeley described as the reasonably white inhabitants of our colonies and dependents. Um, and he's very, very critical of this kind of strand in, um, you know, uh, thinking at, uh, at that time. And against this, Wallace argues that the evolutionary processes identified by Darwin mean increasing divergence and variability between humans. So in his argument, either we homogenize humanity by exterminating huge sections of it, which he thought some people were quite willing to do, or we recognize that the world is richer for the infinite variations of humanity, get beyond the irrationality of race hatred, and develop a consciousness of a common purpose in mankind. So this isn't really quite what I've argued for tonight, um, but there are more resonances than, than I had expected. And then finally, just prompted by the, uh, the reference to Darwin, and I don't know if you can, if you can read it. This is another Jackie Fleming uh, cartoon. So the woman is saying, I'm surprised woman's biological inferiority doesn't come more naturally to us, Mr. Darwin. It seems to require a great many laws and punishments to enforce. Well, firstly, congratulations. Yes, congratulations on a wonderful lecture. Um, so, let me try to contextualize the, the the argument you're making a little bit and see what you think about this, because it strikes me that the the view that you're presenting may be one that actually makes more sense to us now in these times, but maybe um, in a different time it it um, it was the case that the kind of argument that you're arguing against might have made more sense. So I'm thinking, for example, of um, if you go back to the, the, the time of the founding of the, of, the, of the colonies of the New World, the Spanish were debating the humanity of the Indians. It seemed to me it made a lot of sense for those who were defenders of the Indians to say something like, well, they are just like us, okay? and this is the basis for, for <coughs> our treating them um, a lot better than we're planning to. This is something that lies at the back of the arguments of Victoria, the arguments of Las Casas. So now we're living in very, very different times. So now maybe we can stop, turn back, reflect, look at things very differently. Um, but maybe it's as much because of the context of our times as, a, as because of the actual essential nature of the argument. Maybe you're being even a little bit too essentialistic if you're presenting the argument as a, as a kind of universal argument in itself. Just a thought.
guess you talked about human rights, just to kind of... Um, it is on? Oh, right. Um, it's really a question of, um, about human rights, probably more of a comment, really, um, which is... Yes, okay. Um, which, and it's sort of against Ronciere, really, which is, is the politics of, does, it, does the politics of human rights put the emphasis on human or does it put it on rights? And it's sort of an anti-intellectual point also in a way because it seems to me that intellectuals, yes, have been very concerned with the kind of the human bit, but actually something like a human right against torture, for example, all the emphasis is on torture and it often does have a face of a person. You know, that's how organizations try to mobilize is to put faces and names and really fill out the, the kind of context. So, yeah, I'm not, I, I suppose around human rights, I'm not entirely sure that I agree that we need to focus on the human so much in terms of that's not so much where the political contestation goes on. It's more about is that a right and did it happen and that, that kind of thing, which, yeah. Yeah, thank you very much for the great lecture. So <clears throat> I'd like to explore this... Um, this. Well, it's almost a dilemma that you're describing between having not enough content in the human and having too much content. And I was wondering whether there's a middle ground position that you might find, well, perhaps plausible or not. So, I mean, it seems clear that in order to be human, we have to have all kinds of other properties. So we have to have skin color and we have to have sexual identity and you have to have all kinds of other things. But it also seems true that when it comes to giving reasons about um, us as humans when it comes to issues of equality, then the specific instantiations of these properties really shouldn't matter. So wouldn't it be plausible to say, yes, I mean, being human means we have all these things, but in certain contexts, in the really relevant, important contexts, they're really not on the table, or at least the instantiations are not on the table, even though we acknowledge that we have them. Is that, is that on? Yeah? Yeah, it is. Okay, thanks very much. Um, Chandra, in relation, in relation to your question, I actually have no problem at all about saying that the kinds of arguments that I'm developing are arguments that either arise or become possible in particular periods of history. You know, and, and I have no problem about um, recognizing the kind of the power that the notion of creatures like us, they have souls like us, or, you know, however the argument goes, uh, the power of that at various significant moments in history. So I don't, I don't have any problem with that. Um, it seems to me that, that one, can, one can sort of recognize that, uh, one can recognize the continuing power of that notion, you know, we're all the same under the skin, while still recognizing the problems that are associated with that. And it may be that we're now in a period where it's possible for us to see both of those sides, whereas perhaps in an earlier epoch, you were either kind of, you either managed to kind of make the claim about, you know, you know the Indians have souls too, 
or, or you couldn't see them as, as like you in any way. So the, the, the historicity of, of, of the arguments doesn't bother me. I mean, that's entirely compatible with what, uh, uh, with what, I'm, what I'm arguing. In terms of, uh, I mean, uh, very interesting what you say, Kate, about the, the, um, whether people are contesting around the human or contesting around the rights. Um, and I think, I, I mean, I think in terms of... Um, I suppose, I mean, a lot of the discussions that go on in the human rights discourse, to the extent that they revolve around which rights should we recognize, of course, the kind of the question of the rights is the kind of, is the, is the central focus of, uh, of attention. But I think that the, the, the what's, it's, it's very evident that even in a period in which we seem to be very much focused on a language of human rights, that the capacity to grade humans and to kind of um, t- to, to allocate different levels of treatment and recognition according to different kind of categories of humans seems to be able to coexist with a kind of world in which everyone talks the language of human rights. So I don't think... I, I mean, I think it's, it's a kind of... It's, it's something I, I'll think about more in relation to specifically the human rights politics. But I don't think that you could say that the, um, that, that ambivalence around the human um, somehow is, is, not, is not on the agenda or is not something that, that continues to require uh, contestation. And in, term, in, terms of, um, in terms of your point, Kai, about the... Um, I, I think... I think probably what's at issue there is that I want to challenge I want to challenge the idea that we have to give reasons um, in a sense um, I mean it seems to me that making the case for recognizing others as your equal to me is not really about coming up with a convincing argument it's not really about coming up with an argument which can be grounded in the sort of some kind of claim about something that as humans we have in common um, I, I don't that's the sense in which I want to say that it's about it's about a commitment rather than about cognition um, and it's not about I mean it seems to me that I mean wh- when I when I want to say that um, I think we should treat people as equal in a way I'm not I'm not open to being argued out of that really I mean, whatever reasons you give me, I'm sorry, I'm just not open to being argued about it. I realize that in any kind of political discourse, one does have to give reasons. That's part of what one does in politics. So I'm not saying that one never engages in the process of coming up with reasons that might seem convincing to you know, one particular uh, person that you're in dialogue or another. And there'll probably be different kinds of reasons that you'll give depending on who you're arguing with. But at a, at, at a really profound level, I don't think that the issue about who you recognize as a human or uh, whether you recognize humans as equals actually depends on the reasons that you give. Um, so I think, I think there's probably quite a... Um, I think that's, that's probably the point at which that I'm, I'm sort of taking issue with what you're saying. Yeah, so my question is actually a, f- a follow-up to uh, the discussion that you just had with, with Kai. Um, so would it be fair to say that um, um, 
you take there to be two different, or fundamentally different strategies for thinking about our common humanity. The first strategy, which you're criticizing, would be to look for some descriptive characteristic or attribute mm. that we all have in common, and then uh, somehow to show that this attribute may be in the presence of some more um, fundamental moral principle grounds um, our equality. And you're pointing out that whichever attribute we choose, rationality, consciousness, uh, the ability to experience pain and so on, mm. we might run into the problem of um, ranking people on the basis of that attribute um, and, and maybe um, excluding some who should not be excluded and, and so on and so on. The alternative strategy then would be to say we're not looking for a descriptive equality grounding attribute, but um, we rather make it a fundamental normative premise or commitment um, that, that we are all equal. And that, I, I take it, yeah, is, is yeah. the strategy that you're yeah. proposing. So I suppose then the only question is, um, uh, this is fine for those who are already committed to the humanist cause and, and, and who, are, who are converted already, um, but what can we say to defend that commitment uh, to those uh, who, are, who are not yet converted. And unfortunately, of course, um, that, that's still a challenge that we face in today's world. Okay. Uh, my question is more as, a, as an historian. Oh, no. It's all full on. It's all. Is there, are the problems you've indicated peculiar to the concept of humanity? In other words, aren't the same problems peculiar or shared with other concepts, be they race, in fact, some of the ones you actually want to object to, be they race, gender, humanity, um, class? I find it interesting, it seems to me, these all get formulated as a particular kind of concept at the same time, and I do think that modernity uh -huh, uh -huh, is important. Uh -huh. I don't think the way pre-modern people thought about these broad categories is necessarily the same. And it seems to me that they are basically categories in which everybody is in or out by virtue of some quality they don't choose, and in which they're equal if they're in and unequal if they're out. Mm -hmm. And why is this peculiar to humanity? Um, and isn't the problem that in all cases, the decision, a political decision, to choose to treat people like this is naturalized into a decision that they are intrinsically like this. So I wonder in the end whether one shouldn't call your lecture the human in politics as the human, the class, the gender, the race, <coughs> the nation, and any other general category I can think of in politics. Okay. So I, I want to follow up what, what Kai and Christian said um, and just push it just a little bit further. Um, when you make that move from, from kind of a descriptive humanity to, to a more ascriptive um, approach and you say, look, I'm not willing to negotiate over this, this is, this is just part of my commitment, you run into the problem that Christian described, um, how do you argue with people who don't share that commitment? And I was wondering if you're not then closer to Rorty than you wanted to be because you're, you're then in the position maybe you're then committed to use these arguments or to use arguments that work. So because you, you're, 
you're not defending humanity in relation to, to any more fundamental value, you're just committed to it. So when you want to defend it, you just, in a way, you have to use these arguments that just work in convincing other people. And maybe those arguments are the kind of thick arguments of, of everyday elements of human life that we happen to share, but that carry the danger of, of um, kind of creating a hierarchy again. And I was just kind of trying to be a bit positive as well. I was wondering if maybe a, a kind of family resemblance conception of humanity may give you a way out because it gives you a bit of elasticity and kind of blurs any type of ranking that you might get out of thick everyday life conceptions. Okay, thanks very much. I, I'll take the, the, uh, the first and the third together because obviously they're, they're linked. So, I mean... I mean, in fact, I mean, part of what I was going to say in response to the challenge about how do you convince somebody who doesn't share a particular commitment to, you know, all humans are equal. Um, I mean, I, I was, in fact, going to sort of appeal partially precisely to Rorty's particular approach in the sense that I agree with him that the kinds of stories that we tell which make people real to us. You know, I don't like his kind of long, sad, sentimental tales kind of uh, w way of capturing that. But, um, I mean, I do think that those stories that we tell that, that, that make people real um, are a kind of crucial part of the way, in which the, uh, the way in which that argumentative process develops. So I, I incline to his, his position on that in terms of, you know, do you make an argument which is somehow where you bludgeon people over the head with the, the logic of your argument, or do you tell them some long, sad, sentimental tale? I'm more on the side of the long, sad, sentimental tale. But where I want to, where I want to differ, and, and the everyday life component of that, I think is, is extremely important. And that's one of the things I like about the, the quote from Abu Lugod, the kind of the, which is the sort of just getting us to think about the ways in which people, wherever they are, in whatever kind of circumstances and, you know, whatever kind of conventions they live their lives through, actually, we all face very similar kinds of challenges and difficulties. It's a kind of a less normative notion of the human condition than the way in which, say, Hannah Arendt uses it. But where I want to differ from Rorty is, is the like-us aspect of it, right? So that... I do think that it's kind of, it's bringing people to, to life through the kind of the, the everyday that we draw attention to. But I think that the kind of the process there, when it's kind of conceived as, and don't you see how exactly like you these people are underneath it all or behind it all or in some way if you, if you stop thinking about the fact that they speak a different language or they wear different kinds of clothes. Um, I think the like us is far too unquestioning of the kind of... Th that It's a one-way process. It's regarded too much as a one-way process. So I don't think it's, it's, it's a kind of hierarchy. It's not, it's not the kind of the hierarchy that you're in or you're out, but it's a kind of... It's imposing a kind of a particular way of viewing everyone. So my answer to Christian is partly Rorty, but then my answer to you is... Rorty minus <laughs> some, of, some of the things that, uh, that he wants to attach to that. On, on the question about um, all of these general categories actually sort of coming into our way of thinking and our language at roughly the same time, I think that is actually very much to the point. Um, and I think, uh, so I suppose, 
yeah, I'm, and I suppose where I'm... So where I'm starting from is, you know, you spend years of your life at LSE Gender Institute, you become extremely sensitized to the critiques of the notion of gender, right, and the ways in which gender has kind of... Um, you need to be able to think about gender in a way that kind of frees you from some of those kind of essentialized ways of understanding it. Um, and, in, and in a sense, I, I suppose I'm applying some of the same kinds of uh, techniques to thinking about humanity. So I, I kind of, I, I mean, I accept very much the, the point about the kind of the, the similarities, but where I can see what, what you're raising as a kind of, as a potential problem for me is that if I'm, if I'm looking to some way of thinking about humanity that is a counter or is in some way in tension with the kind of the class, race, gender um, categories, uh, then that, that seems to be kind of thrown to some extent into, um, into question if we think that all of these are about a kind of naturalization um, of, uh, of certain kinds of categories. But I think the general point that, that you're making about it's significant that all of these ideas come to be deployed and mobilized round about the same time is actually a very, very significant feature of them. Um, but then that's partly why we can't simply kind of appeal to the humanity as a way of solving the problems that arise uh, in relation to the other ones. Yep. And then there's a drink. Yes. For me. Thank you very much, Anne. Is that on? Yeah. Um, I, um, I'm really curious what you think about that other kind of post-humanism, uh, the, um, the vitalist work that m tries to move beyond thinking about um, what constitutes the human and instead blurs the boundaries between the human and the uh, non-human, um, not through make marking categories between yeah. humans, but through thinking about human, animal... Uh, a kind of vitalism uh, that might also be found in the earth or in other kinds of forms and so on. And the reason I ask is, um, I'm not sure what I think about it really, but the, the reason I ask is because it, it uh, opens up a slightly different um, uh, set of questions around um, uh, an ethics of relationality rather than a question of, of, of the differences between entities and more a focus on what might historically within feminist theory have been called an ethic of care, um, which is less dependent on identifying or recognizing uh, particular entities and more focused on uh, the question of, of the ethics of what the relationship between them is irrespective of, of um, how one characterizes them. Next to you. I think probably given the fact the mic's already there. <laughs> Thanks again, and I, I really enjoyed that. Um, I'm just interested in why you want to interrogate the human particularly, because you've used the phrase quite a lot about human commonality, and Arendt is obviously, you know, has some importance in the way you're articulating. And, I, and, I, and when you were talking about the royalty line just now, I was thinking, why isn't the commonality as in what common means, which isn't necessarily sameness internally between... Mm -hmm. It's actually sharing a space in some sense or back to ideas about relationality, as, as, as Claire just mentioned. So I wondered if there's something about 
world disclosure, world bearing, something like that that comes out of that Arendtian frame that gives you the resonances and the connections without the need for identifications or essence or a list of things and that still will provide ways of persuading and explaining where it is that you think this commitment to equality comes from. Thank you. Um, I, I very much like this idea that uh, equality is a political status. Um, I think that's, that's very plausible. But I was a bit worried by the answer that you gave to Kai. Um, I can see why you want to avoid um, giving reasons um, and not having to explain and justify what's different about me, even though it's still important. Um, but I'm, I'm just a little bit worried that if we're not talking about differences are we able to take account of them properly and include them? Um, and then I thought, well, maybe that's not what you're driving at at all. So I wanted to know, what is equality for? Okay. Um, so, uh, human-animal uh, blurring boundaries. I actually, um, I haven't got a worked-out position on this. Um, I don't actually find it very engaging somehow and which is not to say which is it's, it's, it's obviously it's a, it's a sort of separate matter from the question of how one thinks about human rights in relation to animal rights that's, that's a kind of separate issue but about the kind of the, the whether one wants to, to uh, whether one wants to get out of the problems that I'm identifying in terms of the way that definitions get us into boundary disputes between who's in and who's out and can we just get out of that by in a sense abandoning the notion of the boundary and thinking about the relationship and I, I sort of think as though that's a little bit too much trying to solve it by playing around with words um, so that the, the, the kind of I, I don't really see the connection that you're trying to make between the ethic of care and the kind of the relationality that goes into that, and then the kind of the question of the the, the sort of the emphasis on the a kind of uh, the leaky boundaries, the blurring of boundaries, the kind of the hybridity, uh, they, they, it just doesn't it doesn't kind of it doesn't carry um, weight to me. Sorry, that's a terrible answer. I apologise. Right, and I'm going to give a terrible answer to you as well, Kim. Because part of the answer, I, I probably, the, the honest answer is, I don't want to be simply repeating everything that Hannah Arendt said. Right, so I can't just say, well, you know, you know she identifies the problem and she solves it, which anyway I don't think. But, but, um, but the, I, I think in, in thinking about this kind of project, I mean, I've, I've, uh, I, th I started with the kind of the idea of humanism, in fact. I mean, initially I was thinking about uh, the ways in which there's been so much critique of humanism, the idea of humanism, and ways in which I find that problematic. And then I moved a bit away from that because it's actually, it's very hard nowadays to talk about humanism without getting drawn into a kind of, a different kind of discourse which is around secularism and religion and, and th those aren't the issues that I was particularly focused on. And so then I moved to the human and I was partly aided by Graham Wallace in this and thinking, well, what would be a nice title for this lecture? 
you know, the human in politics, kind of reflecting human nature in politics. And in, and in fact, in, in working on it, it's actually, it's common humanity that is the kind of, is, has become more the focus of my uh, questions and concerns. So, so part of what you're pointing to is in fact a kind of shift that's going on as I try to identify what exactly is it that is troubling me about the kind of human, humanitarian, human rights, humanity. There's a kind of, you know, there's a sort of a, a range of issues there. And I think you're right that the, the human doesn't, doesn't quite capture everything that I'm, that I'm trying to get at. Another very bad answer. Um, and then on, on the kind of the, the question about um, what is equality for, uh, well, can I, can I first say, uh, just in clarification, if I sounded as though I'm saying that uh, I think we can go through life without giving reasons for anything, that isn't actually my position, right? <laughs> I, th I think we do have to give reasons, and of course we engage in argument with people, and of course in engaging in argument with people, you know, we draw on a whole range of resources in order to try and convince people who currently disagree with us uh, that they should shift their positions. So it's, it's not that I'm saying that I want to kind of... Um, you know, that, I'm, that, that I think that we can kind of, we can go through life with very strong commitments to something but never feel that we have to give reasons for it. It's more that I don't think that the, um, that the commitment, in a sense, stands or falls by the kinds of reasons that you try to mobilize in the argument. And in terms of, I suppose I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to think of equality as something that is for anything, really. I mean, I, I, I find... I suppose that, that makes it seem as though it's kind of, well, it, clearly it makes it seem as though it's a means to something else. I mean, that's the, that's the kind of structure of that question, that equality is for doing something that may be more important or more significant. And I, 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 I don't think I would want to think about equality in that way, but we should maybe talk more about, about, uh, about that. Okay, well, it remains for me to say thank you all for coming. Thank you very much for a stimulating.